is. And we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Psalm 139. Uh, Psalm chapter 139 is where we'll be this morning. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here. We're glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, we'll spend a Sunday in the Psalms as we celebrate Christmas. Uh, we've been waiting for the past four Sundays to celebrate the arrival of our Savior. And so uh, we will celebrate. We're in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas. If you are following the church calendar uh, this year. I don't know if you realize this or not. I'm hoping that you were able to perceive it. But around 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve night, I canceled Christmas. I don't know. In my mind, I was sitting in the ER at about 11, and I canceled Christmas. In my mind, this kind of cold breeze went throughout Sugarland. Okay, and it was like a cold, dark curtain falling. I'm hoping that you were able to be like, something's off right now. Yeah, I canceled Christmas. I was at um, the ER at 11 o'clock. Christmas Eve was not my day. Uh, I woke up for a couple of days. I've been having some tooth pain. If you'll remember, if you were here for us, I'm with us back then. Two, two years ago, I had a double root canal uh, on two teeth, which was just a horrible, miserable experience. They messed it up at the time. It's kind of been the bane of my existence ever since then. Well, last Monday, my teeth started hurting. It got worse and worse and worse. On Christmas Eve, it started hurting really bad. And so at 5 o'clock... Uh, Christmas Eve evening, I checked myself into an urgent care center and got some pain meds uh, and actually came straight to service, got up and preached, went home, realized the pain meds were not working, and so was taken to the ER to get more pain meds. And I was sitting in the ER throwing myself a pity party, okay? And around 11 o'clock is when I decided Christmas was canceled, okay? There is no joy. There's no good news this year, all right? No presents for anybody. No one's having a good time this Christmas. And just kind of throwing myself a pity party. Um, they were able in the ER to give me some better painkillers. And so eventually that night I fell into our narcotics-induced sleep and woke up on Christmas morning, just like the movies, okay? Uh, I remember the last thing I thought was, I have no feet. Where are my feet? And then I woke up. <laughs> I knew it was time to open up presents. Um, went to an oral surgeon, uh, and it is the root canal has failed once again, and so it's gone with the tooth. And also, apparently, I have four wisdom teeth that are all impacted, so shoving into the rest of my teeth. And apparently, they're the largest teeth, wisdom teeth, this oral surgeon's ever seen in his career, <laughs> which I felt like was pretty impressive, okay? You can actually see on the x-ray, it looks, I mean, they're at least twice as big as the regular teeth. is really bad. And so pretty soon, we'll be having surgery and getting all of those out. Um, but... 11 o'clock, sitting in the ER, I was having this pity party. If you know me, uh, you could probably testify to the fact that no one throws a pity party quite like I throw a pity party. Uh, and I was sitting there just thinking life is miserable. I was in so much pain. Um, wanted to be with my family that night. Had to be separate from them all day and then knew I wasn't going to be able to, to be with them on the next day. Uh, and sitting there thinking, kind of just commiserating. And I couldn't help but come back to thinking about our Christmas Eve service. Think about how beautiful it was, how much of a good time it was, and couldn't help but think about our, our recent sermon series about the incarnation, about God becoming man, and just how special of a time this season is, and how good God is, and, and how um, perfect and beautiful his nature is revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. And I kind of got frustrated. I got frustrated that I couldn't sit there for 30 minutes and be mad at the world without remembering who God was and what he had done for me. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you want to throw a temper tantrum um, and you're just kind of screaming at God, leave me alone, okay? Give me an hour. Give me 30 minutes in the ER to just be miserable, but he, he won't let you do it. And I, I learned that night, and I've been dwelling on it over the past few days, um, that, that it's hard to escape God's presence. 
I mean, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it can be hard to get rid of God. It can be hard to, to kind of tell him to leave you alone for a little bit, to leave you on your own, to, to leave you to your own devices. And so this morning I want to look at Psalm 139 because that's kind of the, the theme of this psalm, okay? It's a psalm about God's character and his nature and, and his presence, his, his kind of inescapability in our lives. And so we'll explore that this morning as we read the psalm and then explore perhaps why, what might be the, the proper reactions <clears throat> To the character of God. So, if you'll read with me Psalm 139, we'll read through the whole song here. We'll pick it up in verse 1. The psalmist David writes this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Even your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me will be night Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, verse 13. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A really famous poem about God just kind of sparked a lot of, of very famous poems throughout history, a lot of um, very famous commentaries. A lot of people's thoughts about God are often informed by the statements made in Psalm 139. These kind of beautiful and vast and mysterious statements about God and his nature, about his attributes, his characteristics. The first thing I want you to notice, though, in Psalm 139 is even amidst some of these kind of really exalted statements about God, you have a very personal encounter happening between David and God. Um, These aren't just abstract truths for David about God's knowledge, what he knows and doesn't know, where he is and where he's not, um, what he was involved in, what he wasn't involved in. But these are very kind of experiential truths between David and God. Um, This is not just a, a kind of systematic theology about God, these kind of depersonalized truths. These are instead statements of relationship, you and me, I and you. All talk about God really in the end should lead to talk to God. Does that make sense? Um, sometimes we, we can get, if you're like me, so caught up in talking about God. Um, and it can be exciting and fun and interesting that we forget to talk to God. Um, we forget to, to direct our, our, our conversation to him 
to, to be drawn into the psalm. This is one of the things that's an important skill for Christians as we read, particularly as we read the psalms. What, what our goal is, is not just to learn information, but it's to be drawn into the text. And we kind of talk about this every time we start a new series, right? When we want to kind of dive into the text, live in the text, find our way around inside of it. And, and in the end, when we read and study psalms, we want to learn how to pray them ourselves. We want to not just learn about God, but we want to talk to God. We want to be invited into this relationship, this experience that the psalmist is kind of exemplifying for us. But you do have these, these kind of huge dramatic truths about God. We'll look at three, okay? Three truths about God that you find here in the psalm, and then three responses to these truths about God. The first one you find in the first stanza of this poem, okay? In verses one through six. Um, the first truth is this, that God's knowledge surrounds us. God's knowledge surrounds us. In a real poetic way, the psalmist um, compares things and talks about God's knowledge encompassing really all things. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know what I'm thinking even when you're far away. You search out my path, my lying down, all of my ways, everything that I do, you are intimately aware of. Even more in verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know what it is. Before I'm able to, able to express my thoughts, you know what I'm thinking, what I've experienced what I wish to communicate. You'll notice again, this is not abstract truths about God. This is not um, the psalmist saying that God knows all things. Okay. God is God. And he, as God knows all things that he's capable of knowing, this is true. Um, but what's even more to the point of the psalmist, it's not just that God knows everything. It's that God knows everything about me. And God knows everything about you about us, his people. He's intimately aware of who we are. He, he knows everything about us from every experience to every memory, to every thought, to every word, to every desire, to every joy, to every longing, to every temptation. He, he knows us. His knowledge surrounds us. Now, this is good news and it's bad news. Kind of both one and at the same time, it's good news and bad news. It's good news because there's this very basic human need that I think we all experience, which is to be known. We all kind of at a deep level want to be known, um, both in our joy and in our pain. So if you've ever experienced like a real joyful occasion in your life or something really good has happened to you, you're aware that one of the first reactions inside of you is to go tell other people. You want to share it. You want others to know about your joy. You want others to know about your victory. You want to share that, that rejoicing with them. In fact, uh, if you're not allowed to, so say someone says, hey, I've got good news, but you can't tell anyone yet. There's, there's stuff going on. You can't tell anyone. If you're like me, you've experienced your joy being like capped off, right? It's frustrating. I want to tell more people. I, I don't want to just have this between you and I. Um, there's this real sense that our joy is not complete until we've shared it, which is one of the reasons I think worship is so important. Um, our joy in God, I don't think it's, it's really complete. It's really reached its peak until we've shared it with other people, until we've expressed it in song and in worship. Um, there's a sense now in our, our social media world, right, that, that that special event hasn't really happened. You haven't really peaked out on your ability to enjoy it until you Facebooked it, until you tweeted it, until you put it on Instagram for everybody else to like and enjoy and be aware of, right? We want to be known. And the truth of the psalm is that God does know. He knows all those victories. He shares in them. He's experienced them with you. Um, even in our, our sorrow, though, we want to be known. We want other people to be able to share in that. We want other people to, to be able to understand what we've gone through, what we perhaps are going through. This is one of the frustrating things about dental pain for me is it's a hard pain to see, right? So if you're a UFC 
fan, you, you'll see, right? The guy snapped his leg last night. And anybody, right, with two eyes sees that and goes, oh, man, that is incredible pain, right? I mean, he's screaming. He's writhing on the ground. Now all of you are going to go YouTube this, okay? You can watch it. It's there. Um, world UFC champion, right? He, he just kind of snaps his leg and half as he kicks this guy. Um, this is what you get for being violent, okay? I'm just saying. <laughs> There's a certain... Never mind. <laughs> he snaps his leg, and, and you all at once, right? You go, oh, I understand that hurts. Well, dental pain is a little bit different, right? It's hard to see it, okay? It's kind of like, a, okay, yeah, I believe you. It really hurts really bad. We get it, okay? We're going to the hospital? Okay, let's go in and go to the hospital because his mouth hurts. Um, you want to yell. You want to you hit the wall, right? It hurts. You want to communicate this. You want to express it. I think we've mentioned before with crying. The act of crying is this very kind of social uh, experience. You cry... Primarily, scientists say, because you want other people to recognize your vulnerability, your pain. Um, crying is cathartic, as both scientists and teenage girls know, okay? <laughs> Pine of Ben and Jerry's, sad movie, your friends, makes everything feel a little bit better. Um, but the studies have shown that your crying is less cathartic if you're not around people, if you're alone. Crying is less effective if other people aren't around to receive your pain. To be able to see the, the pain that you're communicating to them. The truth of the psalm is God knows all of that about you. In fact, he might even know more about you than you know about yourself. Before a thought is on your tongue, he knows it. All of the good experiences, all of the bad experiences, all of the good emotions, all of the bad emotions. As Christians, we find that we are fully known by God. We're fully open. Now, it's good news. It can also be bad news because there are things that we want to hide. I mean, there are things that we hide from each other. There are secrets that we hold. There are things that we don't want the world to see, the kind of dirty, nasty, shameful parts of our lives. And it can kind of be a little intimidating to know that God sees those things. Those things are not held secret. They're not um, able to be put away um, from God's sight. He knows all those things. But even that bad news, I think, turns into good news when you realize that God's character is such that he doesn't react to those bad things with, um, with punishment and shame and destruction, but with redemption, with rescue. God sees the brokenness and the dirtiness of the world, and he doesn't destroy it in fire. He comes to redeem it. He comes to save it. He knows all things. There's this really intimate part of the book of Exodus where God's people are in slavery, and they're crying out to God, and there's this real poetic phrase where it just says, and God heard them. And then the next thing you know, the plan of redemption is set in place. He's calling Moses. He's, he's getting them ready to come out of slavery. He knows what they're experiencing. He knows what's going on in their lives. This is indeed, I think, the message of Christmas, is it not? God becomes a man, the Son of God, becoming a human incarnation in the person and work of Jesus. God knows what it's like to be human. He doesn't know from afar what it's like to be human. He knows from intimate experience all of the little things that go into being a human being. He knows us. He knows us intimately. He knows us well. It's not a distant knowledge. It's a, an intimate knowledge. If, uh, you remember from our scripture reading earlier today in Hebrews chapter 2, this is the theme there. He has become like us in every way, Jesus has, so that he might be able to help us, so that he might be able to um, find us relief in our temptation. Um, later on in Hebrews, he says something similar in Hebrews 4. I'll read it for you. Um, in verse 14, he says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For, he says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. When you and I are bogged down with this life, God doesn't look at us from afar and go, I don't understand why this is so hard for you. I don't understand what you could possibly be experiencing right now. He says, I know. I've done it. I know. 
We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. First truth here in the psalm is, is God's knowledge surrounds us. The second one is found in the second stanza, okay, verse 7 through verse 12. And this truth is that God's presence is inescapable. His knowledge surrounds us and his presence is inescapable. There's nowhere you can go to escape from the presence of God. Verse 7, where shall I go to flee from your spirit? Where will I flee from your presence? The actual word here in Hebrew is your face. Where can I go to get out of your eyesight? Where can I go to where I can't see and recognize and be in the line of your vision? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my way to Sheol or the grave, the place of the dead, even there, I find you. Where can I go? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I go to the the farthest, remember sea is a, a symbol for chaos and evil and destruction. If I go to the most craziest part of the universe, where surely your presence can't be found, I go there in vain, only to find that you are, you're there. Even there, your right hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me. If I say, God is light, surely the darkness will hide me and the light about me be like night. Even then I find the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. We talk in terms of, of God being everywhere. God is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to escape God. There's nowhere you can go to hide from God. God's like the sun in this sense. So if you think about the sun's kind of presence, the radiance of its beams, there's really nowhere you can go to get out of the sun's influence. And you can't hide under a rock. You can't go to any place um, in the world, okay? The sun's beams will find you out. Um, and will, in some sense, heat up your environment, whether uh, more so or, or less so. In this sense, God's presence is everywhere. Um, again, while it's true God's everywhere, for the psalmist, the more important truth is that God is everywhere he is. And God is everywhere you are. God is everywhere we are. And there's nowhere where we might be able to go where God might not be present. He says, where can I flee from your spirit? We're reminded as Christians of Jesus' promise to send the Spirit. He says, I'll go and I'll send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, the third person, the Trinity. He will dwell with you. He will be with you. He will be um, the, the one who mediates God's presence to you. He will be the one who, in a sense, has you back, your, your back here. In Romans 8, um, we read that the Holy Spirit prays for us and we can't pray for ourselves. Um, the sons and daughters of God, we have these privileges. One of them is, is the Spirit, the presence of God the presence and power of God, and that even when we can't pray for ourselves, the Spirit is there with us, praying for us, holding us, watching over us, providing for us, caring for us. There's nowhere that we might go where we might run away from, run away from God. Now, when we say that God is everywhere, what we mean is very particular, okay? As, as, as Christians who are talking about God, sometimes the way we use words about God aren't necessarily the same way we use words about other things. God is, is above and beyond, and so words sometimes have to be really, um, we have to be really clear about what we mean when we say God's everywhere. For instance, God is not everywhere in the same sense as we might say, if I had a canister of gas and opened it up this morning, we might say eventually the gas would be everywhere. 
right? That's not the same way that God is everywhere. What's, what's really happening, if I were to do that, is that the molecules of the gas would expand, right? Eventually, it would, in a sense, permeate kind of the whole room. But when we say God is everywhere, what we mean is that God is fully everywhere at all times. Does that make sense? It's not that God kind of expands his being and so that you might get one part of God over in this side of the universe and another part of God over in this side of the universe as if he's just a very large being, right? And there's nowhere you can go where you're not under his canopy. It's that his presence, his face is fully present in every inch of the universe, of the cosmos. There's nowhere you might go where God might not be fully present, fully able to provide and to care for his people. Um, He is everywhere. You can't outrun God's presence. There's no space that's not God's space. There's no space where you might show up and say, God is not here. God is unable to care for me. I can't see and experience God's face. If you don't experience God's presence, this is not because God has withdrawn from you. There's a key kind of pastoral point. If you haven't experienced God's presence, if he feels far from you, it might be because you're looking in the wrong place. It might be because you have turned away. But you can be guaranteed it's not because God has withdrawn. It's not because God has turned around from you, has turned his face from you. I've learned over time to be patient in ministry. What I mean by this is, I'm no longer scared. I was at first, but I'm no longer scared that people will run away from God. I'm able to step back and let them, let them explore, if that makes sense. If you're anything like me, hopefully you've experienced this kind of inescapability of God's presence. And sometimes it's frustrating, right? Sometimes you wish you'd get away, but you kind of feel this, this tugging all the time, this pulling, and you find yourself back and back and back. And no matter where you go or what you do, you find yourself once again drawn back by the Spirit of God, brought back by the grace of God. Um, what I've noticed is you and I, uh, as people who believe this about God, um, tend to be impatient and, and not able to let people attempt to explore if you will. Um, so, so we see people, here's what I see as a pastor, okay? And then working with high schoolers. What I see is people who you can very easily tell have some kind of pull in their heart from God. That, that There's some kind of interaction happening there. It's not hard for an outside observer to see this. But yet, they try their best to run away. So they show up, and they engage, and then they leave. And they explore, like the prodigal going off into the far country, selling all the money, rolling around in the dirt, okay? And then they show up, and they leave, and they show up, and they leave, and they show up, and they leave. What I've learned is that we have all the time in the world to wait for them to eventually come in. I'm not afraid that they're going to be able to outrun God. Does that make sense? God has a hold in their life. And it's actually, can almost be kind of amusing to watch it. Like, this is cute. You can run. Good luck. <laughs> right? I mean, I've, I've tried running. Now, there is a time and a place for challenging people, right? For being able to get in their face and say, look, you've got to step up. You can't keep doing this. You can't keep going back and forth and back and forth. You need to make a decision. You need to be committed. But I think there's also this place for letting God do what God only does, for letting the Spirit work. Um, One of our our missions here at the the church is to be this disciple-making people that that in our lives and our relationships, others might come to know Christ. That's going to take, in a lot of cases, patience. That's going to take, in a lot of cases, time where we go, man, I don't know if they get it. They seem to get it now. They don't get it now. They go back and forth and back and forth with kids. They go back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes we just have to trust that they can't outrun God. Uh, once God has their hooks in somebody, he'll always, he'll always draw them. They'll always end up back. That you can't outrun God. There's no space that's not, that's not God's space. 
Um, so God's presence is inescapable. As we continue on in the psalm, uh, we find another truth, the third truth about God here. Um, we read in verse 13, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your books were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, while as yet there were none of them. So God's knowledge surrounds us, his presence is inescapable, and then his purposes envelop us. God's purposes that kind of surround all of who we are and what we might experience. God is compared here to a masterful weaver, designer, um, kind of weaving together this intricate cloth, okay, that we call his creation, and, and more particularly his salvation, his redemption of his creation. And all of it, the psalmist says, finds its way um, intricately and, and on purpose designed um, for his purposes in creation. And, and this, again, goes down all the way to kind of the most inward intimate parts of who you are, of who I am. It's not just that God has a purpose for everything, it's that God has a purpose the psalmist finds for himself, for exactly who he is, for exactly how he was made, and for exactly the way that his story has played itself out. Um, you see here, the, the psalmist recognizes that God is involved in the making of his very body. You form my parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Down to our personalities, we have been designed by God, uh, gifted with certain things. I'm sometimes worried that women's ministries have hijacked verse 14 here. Okay, so I want to say this carefully. Uh, there's this temptation in... There's this temptation in, in the Christian world for a certain group of people to claim a verse... And then everyone else just kind of backs off, right? And it just becomes theirs, and all of their issues and concerns and baggage gets thrown onto that verse, and no one else is able to touch it or use it and those kind of things. This is kind of happened with sports and Philippians 4.13. Okay, I can do all things in Christ's strength with me. Rah, rah, yeah. Let's go win the touchdown. Um, win the touchdown. Let's score the touchdown. You can tell I'm a Texans fan. I don't really quite know how the rules work, okay? There's just a lot of interceptions and a lot of losing. Texans, I don't think are sure either. Um, Poor Texans. Okay. I'm told, see, there's just no good way to say this. Um, I'm aware that women, and more than women, guys have this, this issue as well, this concern as well. Women sometimes have, because of our culture and the way the world's kind of been set up, hypersensitivity to, to body image. Okay, and comparing to, to other women and, and maybe other standards that have been set for them. And so this verse has been one that's kind of been claimed, right? Your body is your body and God gave it to you. And so you work it, girl, right? I mean, you go for it. Be a Christian woman. All those good things. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong at all with that. But, but perhaps it's a verse for all of us as well. Perhaps it's a verse that, that has depth and meaning for, for all of us. Even down, I think, to, to not only just the way our bodies are made, but to the way our personalities are put together. In the body of Christ, we all have different gifts and different strengths and different weaknesses. There are different things that you've been gifted with, different things that you're interested with. And, and that's what combined makes us equipped to accomplish God's purpose for creation. FCQ is FCQ because we have people who like doing these kind of things and people who like these kind of people and people who have these kind of strengths and these kind of weaknesses. And all together we come and we're able to um, 
work for God's purposes. We're able to, to accomplish his kingdom here on earth. Um, we don't all have the same personalities, but each of our personalities were put together, were designed by God. This intimate kind of involvement with who we are. That if we really were to think about it, it's kind of a wonderful and amazing thing. I was born, for instance, with what doctors term a uh, outside voice, okay? So I just, I mean, I talk really loud. Um, I go places where people speak on microphones, and I say, here's your microphone. I say, I don't need it. <laughs> they're like, no, you need a microphone. Like, no, I don't need it. Okay, I can, I can fill the room up with my voice. This is just how I was designed. I don't get nervous when I speak in front of people. Other people get nervous when they speak in front of people. They don't need to be speaking in front of people, right? They need to be doing this and that and this and that, and we all come together, and it forms this beautiful, this beautiful cloth, this beautiful blanket, this beautiful design of the hands of the Lord. He's, he's formed who we are, and then he's formed our stories. The, the psalmist says, um, in your book, we're written in verse 16, all of the days that were formed for me before there were, were any yet formed. Now, the Hebrew here is real vague. It's real ambiguous. It's really hard to pin down what exactly is happening here, except for the sense that our stories are involved in the story of God. There's nowhere that your story, your history, or your future will take you where you'll be outside of God's story, outside of his masterful plan to redeem all things, to make all things new in and through his son. There's no place that you've been. There's no thing that you've done. There's no experience that you've had. There's no hurt that you've experienced. There's no relationship that you've ruined. And there's nothing in your future that will take you to a place where you find your story outside of this, this grand story that God is weaving together. Uh, even even painful, even hurtful experiences. Think of a stained glass window, which up close is, has all these kind of ragged, jagged edges. They don't, they don't look very beautiful. They don't look very put together. They don't look very designed. And then as you step back, you see that, that those weren't random cuts. Those weren't randomly put together. But even in, in the midst of these hurtful and painful things, God, like a, a master designer, God, like a, a master chess player, makes sure every move fits into this grand strategy uh, of his redemption, of his salvation. <clears throat> Our stories are always found in God's stories. His purposes for creation um, go down to our very being, to our personalities, to our bodies, and then to our experiences, to the people that we know, to the places where we live, to the times in which we live. Um, God's purposes envelop us. So um, a response to this, again, I've, I've said, I think abstract talk about God is not in the end helpful. One of the more famous theologians once rewrote his entire systematic theology to be a prayer to God because he came to the conclusion that just talking about God wasn't enough. Any talk about God must be talked to God. And so he rewrote and kind of restructured the whole thing to be one long prayer to God. He thought this is much more fitting for the work of theology. How do we respond to God? How might you and I enter into this relationship that the psalmist has with this God who has a purpose for everything, who knows everything, who is everywhere? Well, I want to follow real quickly. We'll wrap it up. I want to follow the, the emotions of the psalmist and perhaps find our way into this relationship. So if you'll recognize, I don't think the psalmist is always happy about these truths about God. Um, in the beginning, he's kind of going over this idea that God knows everything. If you look in verse 5 and 6, 
He says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And then he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Now, this sounds like a positive thing for us. Like, this is so great that I can't understand it. But I want to suggest it's actually more of a negative connotation to what he's saying here. Almost the sense of I'm overwhelmed by this. I can't handle this. If you ever had a panic attack, right? This is too much for me right now. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to experience this. Um, Verse 5, he says, you hem me in. You're behind me. You're before me. Your hand is on top of me. Almost like this blanket that's kind of suffocating you. He says, this is all too much for me. I can't understand. I can't experience how you know such things. And then if you follow the context again, in verse 7, he doesn't react again with kind of this joyful reaction. He says, where can I get rid of this? How can I get this blanket off of me? How can I get rid of this, this kind of suffocating feeling? Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? This word for flee here, I mean, this phrase, flee from your presence, is actually um, a, has a rebellious connotation to it. It's the same phrase used in the story of Jonah. Do you remember Jonah? God calls Jonah to go preach in Nineveh, um, a city that Jonah is not a fan of. And Jonah says, I will flee from your presence, from your face. And he goes off into the sea in the other direction. And if you know the story of Jonah, Jonah eventually finds out, well, the psalmist knows you can't flee from God's presence. Even in the sea with these pagans, God is there. His purposes are working. But, but the psalmist David, he starts with this kind of sense of, of overwhelming um, uh, appreciation of these truths. Then he goes to the sense of rebellion. Where can I go? Let me get rid of this. And then I think if you follow along closely, he almost turns into this, this sense of resignation. In verse 10, he's talking about he can't get away from God's presence. He says, even there in the sea, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me. In verse 12, even in the darkness, it's not dark to you. He kind of resigns himself. Because I could be here, I could be here. Even there, I guess you'll be there. I guess there's nowhere that I can get away from you. In verse 13 through 16, he starts going through some of the more personal implications of these truths. And then in 17 and 18, I think he lands where you and I should land. And this is with joy. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, is your knowledge, is your awareness is your purpose how vast is the sum of them if i could count them they are more than the sand i wake and i'm still with you his presence his his knowledge his purpose it gives the psalmist joy he enters into a relationship with god finally and fully now with trust with confidence with assurance that he can sleep and when he awakes god will be there and god will be god who he's always been and who he always will be. I'm reminded these past few days I've been at my parents' house um, going in and out of uh, narcotics and do sleep, um, which is really a beautiful gift from God, okay, if you're, if you're ever in a very painful situation. And, and my parents have this real little dog, uh, Maggie, and, and, and I lived with Maggie, and Maggie loves me, okay, like most people. Um, and, and Maggie uh, would lay down and sleep with me while I was going in and out of these kind of these long extended periods of sleep. And I would remember, you know, you fall asleep and she's there laying there looking at you and you wake up hours later and she's there right where she was, right? Laying there looking at you. And there's this sense, I'm reminded of reading Psalm 139, I awake and you're still there. And the world is still running the way you've set it up to run. And I'm still yours and you've still saved me. And no matter what has happened while I've slept, no matter where I wake up at, you're you and I'm me and I'm yours. And God is God, and he is good. Now, I was a little bit worried. I don't know if you ever heard this. There's, a, like, a wives' tale that cats can recognize when someone's dying, and they'll go sit by them. And so it's, like, a way to figure out. And I kept being like, I hope that's not what's happening here, okay? I hope this is not, like, dog whisperer. He's aware that this is about to go bad for me. So there's a little bit of, of, of anxiety there. But 
The psalmist rejoices. He, he responds with joy. And then perhaps a surprising response to us in verse 19, he erupts in this kind of angry uh, outburst toward other people in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you, God, with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I'm not sure why this has not become a Christmas song, okay, or a children's <laughs> song. I hate them with complete hatred. <laughs> Kill them not today. Hey. The psalmist, I think, with the clarity of the vision he's just gotten, right? How involved God is with his creation, is even more now angry about what's gone wrong with creation. Is even more upset with the evil and the evildoers that God allows to stay in his creation. And he, he has this kind of outburst of emotion. Now, these kind of imprecatory parts of Psalms, so we call these kind of curse prayers, are found throughout the Psalms. And, and they can sometimes be troubling for Christians who have been told by Jesus to love our enemies. We think, how can we, how can we pray for God to slay his enemies? How can we pray for us to hate our enemies when we've been commanded by God himself to love our enemies? But there are still truths, I think, to be found here, even as we obey Christ and his command to love those um, who are against us. We follow his example to love those who are enemies. Um, there's this, this really deep truth that the worst emotion for you to experience when you're confronted with evil is nothing. For you to see evil and suffering and pain in your own life or in the world around you, one of the worst things that you can experience is apathy. One of the signs that you're close to God's heart and in tune with his way of seeing the world is if you're upset about it. If you have anger towards it, if you want it to be stopped. This is where God's wrath rises from, his good creation distorted and perverted. And there's also this beautiful truth of the Psalms that God has space in his dialogue with humans for honesty. The psalmist by now is known before a thoughts on my tongue. He knows it, so I might as well tell him what I think. There's this, I think, beautiful freedom to the idea that when you, I mean, really recognize that you're not able to hide your emotions from God to begin with, so you might as well be direct about them. If you're upset with God, you can tell him you're upset with God. By the way, God's heard a PG-13 word before, right? I mean, he's not going to shut down the prayer line because of that. Unacceptable. Do you know who you're talking to? He knows you're thinking it anyways, right? I mean, he knows it's there. The psalmist is honest, says, I'm angry about this, I'm upset about this. And then what's, I think, more particular about this, more, more interesting, is that the psalmist doesn't end with this prayer against his enemies. He ends with a prayer against himself. His, his, his feeling of being upset about the evil in the world ends with him actually turning that on to himself and becoming retrospective, introspective. Asking God to show him where he's a part of the problem, where he has perhaps gone off straight, where he perhaps is part of this evil and this wickedness. In verse 23, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Joy, the psalmist responds with, and then trust. Trust that God will take care of that which has gone wrong with the world. The psalmist prays in honesty that, that God's enemies would be stopped. Um, but the psalmist does not pick up the sword to stop them. The psalmist instead moves into this kind of trustful reflection on his own life. He says, how might I be uh, a part of this? How might I um, be called to repent? And then he surrenders his life to God, the God who knows all things. and says, show me. I mean, show me what's gone wrong in my own life. 
He opens himself up to repentance and then to obedience. He says, I want to walk in the way of life everlasting. I want to walk in the way of truth and peace and joy. I acknowledge that the way I experience salvation is by being obedient. That there is no life for God to offer us apart from life with him. So he says, show me where I've gone off track here. And, and, and let that be my response to what's gone wrong in the world, that I might repent and obey and find life. I think these are all ways that you and I might find ourselves invited into the prayer life of the psalmist here. We want to recognize that, that God's knowledge surrounds us, that his, his presence is inescapable, that his, his purposes envelop us, and that we might be able to respond with a sense of joy and trust and assurance, that we might be able to respond with this the sense of, of trust that God will take care of what God needs to take care of and that we might respond ultimately with surrender that we might say test us show us, lead us we might repent of where we've gone wrong we might walk in obedience after our Lord would you pray with me?